From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. Who has the lead on quantifying and, and requiring metrics for environmental information like carbon and emissions? I think it's very clear the UK and Europe are out ahead. Uh, they have the Corporate Reporting Sustainability Directive, for example, proposed, w- would establish requirements for reporting, for assurance on that. Uh, they have a system for filtering through all of the private sector standards, the menu, and picking and choosing and identifying leading practices and how to raise the bar. All of that discussion is occurring. That was Wes Bricker, former chief accountant of the SEC and current vice chair and U.S. Trust Solutions co-leader of PwC, talking about sustainability reporting and who is in the lead, the U.S. or the EU. He joins this episode to talk about the role of technology in audits, explains how the current pandemic has accelerated its use, his role as the chair of XBRL International, an organization behind the technology that makes financial statements machine-readable, and we quiz him on areas where the audit profession might have scope to improve. And if you listen closely, at one point in the interview, you will hear me, accidentally, refer to Wes as the former chief economist of the SEC. My co-host for the interview is UT McCombs Master of Professional Accounting student, Taranika Chaudhry. Wes, welcome to the program. Good morning. God, it's great to be here. And my co-host today is uh, Taranika. She's an MPA student here at the University of Texas McCombs School of Business. Taranika, thank you. It's great to be with you also. Hello. Yes, and Taranika happened to be an intern at PwC, and so uh, there's a pre-existing connection here. It's not an accident that she's joined us. Um, but Wes, uh, you've been at PwC for a while. You left the SEC. How long has it been now since you've departed the SEC? A couple of years. So um, I left in 2019, early 2019. You were the agency's chief accountant. What does the chief accountant do? Well, it, it was a privilege to serve in that role. And I, I did serve in that role for almost four years. I also served as an accounting fellow and as a deputy chief accountant at the SEC. Accounting is essential to our capital markets. And so it's really important at the SEC as well. And the chief accountant has the job of advising the commission on matters that are related to accounting or the auditing or professional ethics that goes into the system of producing numbers that people all around the capital markets use and rely on and incorporate into their decision making. So why did you return to PwC and how did the SEC sort of play in or prepare you for that? It's a great question. As I thought about my next role after the SEC, what really encouraged me in my experience at, at the SEC was its focus on trust. The SEC focuses on promoting a market environment that's worthy of the public's trust, whether it's promoting investor protection or capital formation or the fairness and the efficiency in our markets. All of that is designed for trust. 
that the system will actually operate. At PwC, PwC's purpose is to build trust in society and solve important problems. That's PwC's purpose statement. And so I had an opportunity that was offered to me uh, by PwC to join the firm and to lead the assurance practice at that time. And that's a role where at the time it was 16,000 professionals, staff and partners were focused every day on adding assurance or related services to information so that people can rely on it, can have confidence that it's right. That's a trust-oriented service, and it's that overlap between the SEC and PwC uh, that was really important to my decision-making. So what's the difference between leading an office of, say, 50 or 60 accountants at the SEC to leading 16,000 accountants at PwC? Uh, Numbers. There's a lot more zeros. But it, more, much more substantively, what's the difference? The difference is the team at the SEC, roughly 50 within the chief accountant's office, is a team whose job it is to advise the commission, but also be the arms and legs and the eyes and the ears of the commission, making sure that the system as a whole is really functioning or where it needs attention or adjustment or change. Uh, that the right people focus in those areas. And so one of my jobs at the SEC was overseeing the Financial Accounting Standards Board, also overseeing the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. I also served as chair of the monitoring group, which has a role globally for audit and ethics standards. So there's a lot of work that the 50 people do at the SEC in monitoring the effectiveness of the reporting structure, the system, making sure that it's operating. At PwC, then you're you're in the market structure. You're delivering services, but those services incorporate the professional standards, the regulatory rules. And so the jobs overlap, but they are different. And in the private sector, just because of the number of companies that need an audit and the work that goes into that, once you total up all of the people you need, you need a lot more people doing that work. You need 16,000 in the case of assurance. Now, uh, maybe maybe we can talk later about how at PwC uh, we've shifted things around uh, to respond to the market. Now I have the privilege of co-leading Trust Solutions, which is essentially half of uh, PwC. So that's now 20 plus thousand professionals who are focused every day on building trust. Yeah, we definitely want to dive in a little bit there. But before we reach that point, the main focus of today's interview, we hoped would be on the role of technology in the audit. We hear a lot about AI, ML, and how the world's changing. You know, cryptocurrencies and crypto assets are the, you know, topic du jour. But we don't hear a lot about how auditing plays into those roles. And so I just want to start by asking, you know, from your perspective, how is technology being used and how is that affecting the audit? Technology has a pervasive impact on the work that we do. And that's a really good thing. Sometimes it's easy to sort of think of technology and its impact as being a brand new thing. But just, just for context, I was reading the other day a passage from John Kerry's book from 1962 on the accounting profession. And there's a chapter entirely devoted to the role of the computer and the speculation that the computer 
as they knew it in 1962, would replace the need for accountants. Well, clearly, clearly now, decades later, uh, we see that technology has enabled accountants to do their work. But also with technology, it increases the landscape of information that's able to be used in the marketplace. And so technology can increase the relevance of accountants as well. So it both enables as well as increases. At a very specific level, uh, for example, at PwC, we invest very heavily in technology because it's used in conducting risk assessments, trying to identify the areas where there really could be a problem with the information. Maybe it's not complete, maybe it's not accurate, maybe it's not representing uh, in a faithful way the underlying activity. So risk assessments can help us better identify areas of interest for further testing. But technology can also help us look at total populations of data and better understand the nature of the activity as we do substantive testing on that information. And then technology, of course, can also help us in communicating, communicating about the work that we've done. So it has a pervasive impact. So I, I was trying to find a way to ask a question about how technology's use has changed at audit firms. And I was talking to our student producer group in advance. And I said, what if we ask him about whether he's ever used a 10 key? And everybody looked at me and said, what are you talking about? And I thought, oh, maybe that's the perfect question. So I'm going to ask it. Have you ever used a 10 key? What is it if you have? And are they used anymore? So I have. I had the TI-5100 when, when I started my work. Uh, so what is a 10-key? A 10-key is an adding machine, uh, but you can do a lot more uh, than just simple adding, subtracting, and there's a variety of things that you can do there. But it, it, it was a manual process. It was a manual process of when I interned, for example, testing the arithmetical accuracy of a long list of numbers. That was relevant because there was a bookkeeper who was literally manually entering amounts that he or she had calculated, wrote them down into a ledger, and then totaled it up at the bottom. And as an auditor, then there was a risk of error associated with the mathematical accuracy. So a 10 key, I learned how to key in very quickly. I thought it was quick, but as an intern, I'm sure many others would have uh, done it uh, better and faster than I was. It was my job to test the mathematical accuracy. Technology, however, has reduced the risk of misstatement in that case. And we still need to test the ability of software code to accurately sum a set of data. But the way we test that is now different. We need different expertise and different tools to do that. So given the presence of COVID-19, how has technology changed in the audit? And has it helped or aided in any way during the current times we live in? So COVID-19 has had profound impacts on business, on professional services, and on public accounting. And we're, we're clearly in the early stages of that, very appropriately, as, as a firm and as a leader. We prioritized the safety of our people and our clients and others that we would come in contact with. We appropriately prioritized safety. But COVID-19 has also accelerated technology, and it needed to. At PwC, we had invested in technology well before the pandemic hit. 
we had invested in the training and the expertise of all of, all of our people because our technology strategy starts with our people. We empower every one of our PwC professionals to understand coding, for example, small-scale automations, visualization tools. And we do that because we want to empower everyone at PwC to have the skill sets, the digital training, one, to be relevant, but also to deliver the audit with digital skill sets right at the right at the point of their work so that they can they can really work in most environments uh, within businesses and business technology. We also invest very heavily as a firm in business level or firm level technology. And so the tools and and applications that enable us to share information or to gather massive amounts of data, wrangle it, analyze it, visualize it, and then uh, reach conclusions from it. So would it be safe to say that there were positive externalities from COVID-19 improving the quality of, of the audit? And, and so, Scott, the, the economic term, I, I think, is important to emphasize uh, positive externalities from a very negative human uh, event. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. A couple of very specific uh, examples, inventory observations, for example, we're able to do that using video technology in a different way. But it also focused us and our clients on how they safeguard and verify their, inven their inventory. Some of our clients redesigned their business processes so that they weren't just counting inventory at the end of a 12-month period, but rather doing that on an ongoing basis, which helps improve the quality of the record keeping and the quality of management's attention on safeguarding inventory or the quality of it and moving it. We also invested in uh, different connection uh, technologies, our use of Wi-Fi and cellular te technology. Of course, that's that's sort of taken for granted. But as as we think about how we connect and do that in a safe and secure way, we're thinking about privacy, cybersecurity, and the resilience of all of our people in being able to connect and to do so in a way that preserves the privacy and the confidentiality of our work. So there's been a lot of, of investments that have enhanced our work during COVID, uh, again, seeing COVID as an accelerator uh, to enable us to continue to deliver assurance, um, notwithstanding the disruptive uh, impacts of the pandemic. So with the rapid growth and implementation of technology, does that sort of raise concerns about the inspection process of audits? For um, inspections of audits, during COVID, as a firm, we inspect our audits, part of our quality control system. As a firm, we provide private company work, uh, which is then inspected by others outside of our firm. It's called a peer review. Uh, they come in and they inspect. And then for our public company audits and broker-dealers that are subject to the PSUV's jurisdiction, the PSUV conducts uh, inspection. What we've seen across that, that work is that COVID has not stood in the way so the inspections program uh, was a really important conversation uh, that we had and regulators had about how they would continue to deliver it, even though they're not physically present. 
Unfortunately, they reached the conclusion that they could continue to deliver high-quality, rigorous inspections without being physically present. But that's the same thing that was occurring all across business. Businesses were figuring out how to deliver their products and services without being physically present. CFOs were figuring out how to do their record-keeping in the financial statements and financial systems without being physically present. Auditors were figuring out how to audit it without physical presence. And, and so the work that the PSUB, the profession through its peer review program, or we did internally around inspecting the quality of work without physical presence was just an extension of what's occurred all across business. Can we talk about the permanence of that or the potential permanence of that? Again, to the positive externalities notwithstanding all the negative issues with COVID. Has that changed your equation on how you organize human capital at the organization? Are people going to stay remote forever? Do you need headquarters anymore? Do you need office buildings? Like, what does the future hold? Yeah. I think we will continue to need physical presence in our work. As much impact, positive impact as technology has, technology alone doesn't replace the human side of auditing. The human side is the, is the side that analyzes, adds constructive challenge, skepticism, integrity. It's the dialogue of sitting across the table from someone, understanding their business and the reporting and the processes. And so as a firm, um, we will continue to have a geographic set of locations, but we will also adjust as we need to, to a labor market that's also shifted. That's why, for example, PwC announced uh, that we would have a virtual option for new recruits coming into the firm or for our existing workforce. What was that for? That, that's because not everyone is able to or willing to be vaccinated, just as an example. Or they might have a preference to do their work on a virtual basis. And at PwC, we wanted to include them in our workforce and provide an opportunity for them to contribute. But it's not all or nothing. That's just one channel. We have other people who are quite comfortable being vaccinated, being physically approximate with, uh, with a client or another PwC team member. We want a place for them to work as well. And so that's what we've been doing, bringing together a, a broader set of expertise and professionals so that we can deliver the services that stakeholders count on us to bring. So let's uh, shift to another part of technology. I know you're a very busy person. You have a lot going on, a lot of responsibilities at PwC, but that didn't keep you from becoming the chair of XBRL International. Why did you take on that role and maybe just start with uh, describing what is XBRL, why it's important, and how does it relate to technology? It's a terrific question. It's one that I'm passionate about that I know you and many others are uh, as well, Scott. XBRL is a mechanism to promote information in a machine-usable form, machine-readable form. And an organization that advances that mission is XBRL International. 
It stretches around the globe. It incorporates feedback and information from uh, the activities of major countries all around the globe. And it promotes a conversation about how to move forward with the data and the machine-readable taxonomy and specifications that we all need in order for data to move much faster and with a greater degree of usefulness. So that's what I'm passionate about. I took on uh, the role of chair of uh, the XBRL board last year. And at the board level, we've been we've been working diligently focused on how we communicate. We bring information together. We connect the dots. We share information uh, from different vantage points because it's a very diverse board. It's made up of practitioners, of investors, of regulators, uh, many others. It's a diverse board. We're also focused on advancing the role of data and technology. That's more of an advocacy role. And last, we're also focused on education because the pace of change in data and technology and the way it can be used to promote different organizations is moving very fast. So we have an educational role as well. So XBRL, which for the listener stands for Extensible Business Reporting Language, it was launched by the SEC in 2009, ostensibly to take all of the balance sheet, income statement, statement of cash flow, footnotes, everything, and make it machine readable. So it's not just a paper document and you don't have to ship off financial statements to some foreign country and have somebody manually input the data into a database. It's just right there and it just ports straight into a database for anybody to use. So it's been more than a decade since we've had this in place. And we interviewed Jay Brown, a former board member of the PCOB, who I think you know well. And he made the comment that it really hasn't lived up to its promise. And uh, we didn't go into any details in the program why, but I wanted to ask you, why would somebody say something like that? I mean, what are the bumps along the road that XBRL has experienced? There, there are bumps along the road and there's opportunity to do more. And so I agree with Jay Brown's assessment that there's more to do here. One specific area where there's more to do is when XBRL is implemented at a company by company level, it needs to be implemented in an accurate way. And what we continue to see are errors, a very high level of errors in the tagging of data within financial statements, for example. So Scott, your, your example of tagging the balance sheet, the income statement, the statement of cash flows really elevates the usefulness of that information, but only provided that the tagging is done accurately. XBRL US, which is uh, the local variation, set up a whole system of rules to check accuracy. And what they found was that 50%, 50 plus percent of XBRL tagged financial statements still contained at least one error. That's something for all of us to work on. There is a better way. So when you say tagging, this is, you know, the revenue line, you tag and say, this is revenues. And all companies should say, this is revenues. The machine knows for six different companies, this is all the revenues tag. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is sometimes there are errors in that tagging. And I think one of the errors that comes up, maybe it's not an error, but it's discretion. Mm -hmm. Somebody says, well, it's revenues, but it's a certain type of revenues. And I don't see the standard tag uh, in the taxonomy of available choices. So I'm going to extend it and create 
something new. It's a special type of revenue. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was an oversimplification, but is that one of the problems that we're seeing today is non-standardization and discretion? Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good example, Scott. That's an example where the application of that discretion and judgment then undermines the ability to look at all six companies on a comparative basis because things that may have an underlying comparability is read by the machine as being different. And that leads to an error. And, and so there's a better way here. I, I think a better way is what Jay Brown has talked about and others. There's a role for the accounting profession, CPAs, potentially to bring XBRL into the scope of an audit of the financial statements, for example. Today, it's not part of the audit of financial statements. And I think that's, that's an area of worthy of analysis and debate about potentially bringing it in in order to elevate the uh, the feedback around tagging before information is provided to the SEC. Because what we also see in the market is that it's sort of the, the raw material gets filed with the SEC, has the errors and so forth. And then it gets downloaded from the SEC's website by private firms who correct it, normalize it, adjust it, and they sell it um, to institutional and other buyers. I think a better way is to make sure it, it has good quality whenever it is uh, first filed with the SEC. So you anticipated my next question. And if you have these, you know, 50% of the statements that have a sign error or they put thousands instead of millions or their units are off and it creates an error in the, in the downloading of the data, what you're saying is right now that's not audited. So if I look at the paper document and they have it right listed there, mm -hmm. That's all it's audited, but the underlying data that you're putting in the database, that's not. I mean, I mean, to the I think the average person, that might be surprising. Well, why aren't you auditing it? And so the question is, why isn't there a requirement to audit it right now? Scott, I think that's that's the perfect question. It is jarring. The scope of the financial statements, the scope of the, the standards that we look to to decide what's in scope, what's not in scope which translates into what the audit committee uh, perhaps looks at, what they anticipate others are looking at. That division is increasingly blurred between the paper financial statements and the tagged financial statements. It's blurred because today in the U.S., all of that looks like the same document, but there are these sort of fine technical distinctions uh, which are still present within uh, the rules that, that guide the scope of the audit. I think it's a good time to take a fresh look in that area. Europe, for example, has taken a fresh look at their audit requirements. Uh, for example, they recently introduced new rules, the European Single Electronic Format Rules, which now consider the XBRL instance in their case for statutory financial statements that have a statutory audit. They don't make the same distinction we do. It's all in scope. So um, what what we've seen, like in that example, is other countries have have taken a look at this. Uh, I, there's no doubt in my mind that in the U.S. Uh, this will hit the right level of prioritization at some point, and and uh, we'll we'll all focus as a standards and a policy matter um, on getting uh, getting this updated. So what role does XBRL International play into sustainability reporting? That's a terrific question. 
in sustainability reporting, of course, that's that's an area which is developing as well. One of the standard setters that lay out, lays out all of the series of metrics for sustainability reporting is the Value Reporting Foundation. That's the they previously uh, went by the name of the SASB or Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. So they've written all the standards. And then your question, how do we digitize that? That was the question that I spoke with them about and our PwC team did in offering to do on a joint basis a taxonomy for their standards. And so they've, uh, they went through their normal process, they gathered public comment, and they have now uh, provided for use an XBRL taxonomy to digitize sustainability reporting. And that has all of the benefits of machine-readable data, as we talked about for the financial statements. It's a really helpful step forward in a broader landscape of reporting and improving the usefulness. Can you just uh, kind of unpack that a little bit for us and the average listener? So we have these different organizations like the FASB, and the SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, and then we have international organizations. Like, how do standard setters all get together and decide report A, B, and C in this particular way? It's a great question. Standards have the characteristic of being generally accepted. So what does that mean? That means standard setters have to get a lot of people in the room, investors, regulators, policymakers, companies, auditors, get them in the room uh, to debate how to develop the best way or a good way, said another way, a generally accepted way of measuring or communicating something. That's the work of a standard setter. Well, there are a lot of these little, not little anymore, a lot of these groups that do that work for sustainability metrics. The work of aligning on how to measure things and how to report things is a long-standing challenge. In financial accounting, we went through that, for example, and we're down to two predominant sets of standards that cover the vast majority of the world's economic system. That's the U.S. generally accepted accounting principles and the international financial reporting standard. People say it's a two-gap world, and that's what they're referring to. In sustainability, uh, we have many more than two. We have a, a multitude of them. And so the current discussion, which is appropriate, is to now synthesize and narrow the field of good ideas to come up with uh, the best leading ideas of how to report sustainability information. And that's occurring. So in can the, I inter interject for a second? Right. Yeah, I just, uh, so I, I, there's always this pervasive chicken and egg problem. Mm -hmm. Like you develop standards to report, but unless a government or a regulator mandates the reporting, then how do you know what you're developing to report? I'm like, mm -hmm. how do you solve that problem? How does the SASB yeah. or other organizations come up with standards if they don't know what the SEC and yeah. other jurisdictions are going to want to be reporting? Yeah, it's a terrific question. That's why you can't set standards in a silo. You can't do it isolated. You have to do it with everyone at the table so that it's generally accepted. So you have to do it with companies who understand of their actual operations and the information and the data that's actually being produced and used. You also have to do it with investors and others who are making decisions from the information. And that's how, that's how we, we bring practice and practitioners into policymaking. 
It occurs within standard setters of getting everybody at the table. It, it's, it, it's truly a diverse, meaning we have different perspectives represented, but also inclusive discussion because we have to come to an agreement and general acceptance at the end of the debate. That's the work of standard setters, and it takes a long time. And that's one of the that's one of the criticisms. Why does it take so long? It takes a long time be, be, because you're bringing a lot of different, diverse voices to the table who have a point of view, and then we have to work toward consensus. Because I I, rem- I like your point. It takes a long time because I can remember as far back as 2010 meeting with the SASB at the SEC and other organizations right after the global financial crisis, and they're saying, hey, we need to implement these standards and thinking, wow, there's no chance that any of this is going to get done right now. And is one way of viewing this is they spent the last decade thinking about this, coming up with potential standards, and now regulators have a menu of options mm-hmm. and say, hey, we could do this, this, or that. Yeah. Now there's voluntary compliance here, and people think this is important, and now they can choose mm-hmm. and say, this is what we like, and this is what we should do. Is that one way to look at it? Yeah, I think that is a good way of looking at it, that if, if we just take stock of sustainability reporting, 90 plus percent of the S&P 500 companies have a voluntarily provided sustainability report on their corporate website. So what's the role of a regulator? Well, a possible role is to raise the bar on quality and consistency of that reporting. So the market has led in addressing an information need, but there's still a role for a regulator to take stock of of how that reporting is done and, and where there might be quality issues. Maybe there's consistency issues, or maybe there are different practices that need to be brought in and the bar raised. So we've been using the word sustainability kind of generally. We haven't like dug into what that means and there's not enough time to do that. Obviously, we could do like hours on it. But I do have one more question for you in terms of different jurisdictions. Like where does the U.S. sit compared to Europe or Asia or elsewhere in terms of where they are? Is U.S. in the lead? It's behind. Who is the leader and who's going to set the tone for sustainability reporting? It's a terrific question. Um, There's not common agreement on that question itself because there's not common agreement on what it is that we're talking about. So, for example, the U.S. has traditionally had the lead, the gold standard for capital markets disclosure, proxy statements covering governance considerations, financial statements integrated into a broader annual report with management's discussion and analysis, business risks and the like. That's viewed as the gold standard, and I think it continues to be. But then on a more targeted question, who has the lead on quantifying and and requiring metrics for environmental information like carbon and emissions? I think it's very clear the UK and Europe are out ahead. Uh, They have the Corporate Reporting Sustainability Directive, for example, proposed, would establish requirements for reporting, for assurance on that. Uh, They have a system for filtering through all of the private sector standards, the menu, and picking and choosing and identifying leading practices and how to raise the bar. All of that discussion is occurring. Now, very helpfully, the, the SEC is focused on this as well. Chair Gensler has positioned carbon reporting 
reporting, very high on the SEC's agenda. A former acting chair, Commissioner Lee, requested information, and there were hundreds of letters submitted with helpful input about the direction of travel. And, and so what I would say is the dialogue around the world with the U.S. and Europe clearly leading the, the discussion is important, but what we can't miss in that process is the importance of confidence in the information, confidence in the quality of the information, and making sure there are good safeguards that protect investors as that information makes its way into the public markets. So when we're going to shift gears on you a little bit again, we're actually going to circle back to something you alluded to before. PwC recently announced the reorganization of tax and audit. Can we, can we go back to that and ask sure. you some questions? So we know that PwC announced you know, it's merging its two business segments of tax compliance and audit. Could you talk about what the benefits of that are? There, there are real benefits as we looked as a firm at the strategy that we have on a global basis. And we, we do that from time to time, as any organization would. We look at what's happening in the marketplace and we, we really go through an analysis of shaping our strategy. And we looked at asymmetry in the markets. We looked at the debates about employees and employee rights and, and wage levels. We looked at disruption in the capital markets, the amount of time that a company spends in the private markets or the public markets, the, the longevity of a corporate strategy. We looked at polarization. We looked at a general decline in trust across a number of institutions. And that informed our strategy, which we implemented as the new equation. As we look at of where the market is today and where we anticipate it will go. An operating model brings a strategy to life on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's our operating model that we reshaped to combine all of our services that relate to building trust across a series, both the buyer and a series of users of that service. So we looked at services that have that common element, assurance and tax. We did that again because the market is reshaping expectations for those services. That's different from consulting. Consulting uh, services are, are areas where expertise is both bought and consumed um, often by the same organization or sometimes even the same manager. And, and so it has a distinction in both. In both, our PwC purpose is really uh, delivered of building trust in society and solving important problems. But the nature of the service, the nature of our customer, and the way we deliver it is different. We organized around those principles. So, you know, my former role, current role too, as an economist, I'm always thinking about market failures and inefficiencies. And when there mm -hmm. is a change, I always ask, well, why wasn't it done before? And so my, my same question here is why wasn't it done before? And before I let you answer, I'll just let you know, I asked somebody else that question and it was my wife's grandfather, who's an old Coopers and Lie brand partner from many decades ago. And his answer was, you can't combine tax and audit. It's a conflict. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> uh, so surely 
you have thought about the conflicts and how you've uh, organized this. And can you just explain, you know, these old concerns and why we've made the change? Yeah. Look, it's it's a terrific question. Um, if we were a small practitioner firm, if it were a sole proprietor, a sole proprietor would not make these distinctions. They would just be delivering public accounting services. And it would be bookkeeping, it would be audit, it would be tax, it would be advisory. At a larger firm, larger firms have separated lines of business over time. And it's because we're a larger firm that, that we have over time separated assurance services based on both the nature of the service being uh, being sought after, but also the functional expertise. Same with tax, same with advisory. But as we looked at it, we we came back to what is the market buying from us and what do they expect from that service? And then also, where are the opportunities for scale and synergy for all of our people? And so as we looked at our lines of business, we saw that as an opportunity to combine. So we combined and organized, again, uh, based on sectors. For example, in trust solutions, we have seven sectors. Uh, then we have a, a private business and we have specialties. So we did that in order to bring the organization that reflects how our buyers and those who consume our services are really thinking about their, their needs. So we're, we're getting closer to our end of our time with you. And as I mentioned before, we had Jay Brown, who is a former board member of the PCAOB, he's a legal scholar, and he, he said a lot of really interesting things. And we wanted to do a speed round with you and just make some of his observations available to you and have you comment and give your thoughts as a former chief accountant of the SEC who had oversight of the PCOB and now in private practice. Mm -hmm. And one of the first observations he made is that there are a lot of really old auditing standards. And in fact, you can read gender bias uh, into them. They're so old and they need to be updated. Do you agree with that? Are there a lot of audit standards that just need updating and the PCOB needs to, to do that? I, I think all audit standards should be consistently reviewed um, to, to be kept current. Um, I, I agree with that sentiment. The PCB has an important role of keeping standards current. We also brought to him the question of private company audits. There's been a lot written about this recently, about private company audits may not have a great oversight. I think you mentioned that the oversight is really peer review. Do you think there's an, any issues that need to be addressed? Do we need a PCAOB for private companies or uh, can this be solved without some sort of oversight structure like that? 
I, I think we should all, always look at the, the health and quality of different segments um, with, within practice, whether it's public or private or, or specialty. In, in private reporting, there are distinguishing characteristics. Uh, this is why, for example, when we set audit accounting standards, uh, there's a private company council that advises the FASB and creates uh, different information content. It's because of the role of management and the proximity of owners um, in that private enterprise. And, and so the information flow is different. The nature of information needed in financial statements and reporting and audits can be different. So there, I, I think it's important, one, to understand the similarities, but also the differences between public and private. But on quality, um, there always needs to be confidence in the reliability that the work that needed to be done was in fact done and that it can earn trust and confidence of those who use those those statements. Does there need to be more transparency in the assessment of the audits? Like the AICPA had one view of the quality of the audits relative to what the peer reviews um, indicated, at least according to the Wall Street Journal. Is that a concern? Uh, I, I think it's hard, you know, with, without sort of going back through the Wall Street Journal article, I think just private practice uh, generally starts in a, in, in a very different context. For example, in many cases, a private company does not have an independent audit committee. And so all of the communications that a public company auditor would do with an independent audit committee, well, that's different. And, and so, look, I believe private company reporting, private company audits is a really important part of practice. And I'm confident from a PwC perspective uh, in the work that we do. I also believe the peer reviews we get are rigorous, they're appropriate, and they give us valuable feedback. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want the objectives of outside-in feedback to be any different. So continuing our line of speed round questions, uh, what do you think about the issues with foreign audits and in particularly auditors not having access to documentations? Jay Brown had said that the penalties that the PCOB could enact could be much stronger and they're not, and that uh, there are some remedies to improve this, perhaps. And I'm just wondering, you know, absent of delisting Chinese firms from U.S. markets, are we going to get a better solution to that with respect to audits? And yeah. compliance. This has been a uh, long debated. I uh, I joined a, a statement um, about this issue when when I served as chief accountant. I believe th that you know, of course, fraud or misconduct has has no place in any market. But it's also not specific to any market. It routinely crosses boundaries, and and so it is important for regulators to have access uh, to information, and for investors to know when regulators don't have access. And I'm speaking, of course, to the PSOB's description and announcement that they do not have access to books and records for companies domiciled in the People's Republic of China. I think it's important for investors to know that. Now, what should the PSOB do? I, I, I can't weigh in on that, given uh, given that I'm uh, no longer in my former public role. But I, I think the direction from Congress, the, the uh, discussion about delistings is clearly informed by a view that that's the best path to protect investors from a potential loss associated with not being able to inspect. So another fact that I learned from my interview with Jay that I didn't really appreciate, or maybe I knew, but I didn't appreciate it, is that 
the PCAOB doesn't issue guidance on its standards. And Jay thought, well, they should because the SEC does, because rules are complicated and you never anticipate all future states of the world and they issue guidance to help clarify, should the PCOB offer guidance to its standards? Is that something, an innovation that we need? I, I think there's a place for it. Sometimes people uh, look at the SEC or even FASB and they say, well, the FASB has an emerging issues task force and we need something like that for the PCB. Again, there's a place for that. But I think it's also important to miss an important distinction between audit guidance and accounting guidance. Accounting guidance is designed to produce a useful outcome in financial reporting, decision useful outcome. Auditing standards are often designed around the process of gathering evidence. So if you look at process guidance, Within an SEC context, the SEC has some but very limited guidance on the process that companies should go, should incorporate into the design of their disclosure controls and procedures or for their internal control over financial reporting. They have some guidance, but it's limited. And I think that's, that's a more comparable benchmark uh, for comparing auditing standards. So there's a place for it, but, but I wouldn't see that as addressing all of the areas where auditing standards could potentially be updated. That's a nice nuanced answer. Our last speed round question, should audits and the process around them be one size fits all, or should they be scalable, either the size of the audit firm or the size of the firm being audited? Yeah. In aspects, uh, they should be one size fits all, and in other aspects, they should be different. For example, we have this in the content in an auditor's report. An auditor's report uh, for the largest of companies will include critical audit matters. And that's a really valuable innovation that has come into the public markets on a phased basis, starting with the largest of companies and then phasing in to smaller companies so that we could learn from good practices. But in other smaller and different types of, of companies, the standard auditor's report does not include critical audit matter. That's an example where uh, one size does not fit all. Another area is in internal control reporting. One size does not fit all in that case. But that's worth pausing on. For internal control reporting, uh, low or no revenue co uh, companies that are registered with the SEC, in many cases are not required to have an auditor to attest to the internal controls. The rationale in that case was not that the process of auditing should be different, but the rationale was that the underlying financial statements of a low or no revenue company, the income statement, would have different informational content for investors because it's not being valued based on revenue that doesn't exist. It's being valued based on the promise of future revenue, which is not yet within the financial statement. And so the underlying content was different from many other public companies. Those distinctions are the distinctions that the SEC staff and then the commission wrestle with very appropriately to arrive at the right landing spot between one size fits all and tailored requirements. All right. Well, Taranika is going to land this interview for us. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the future of auditing. Going off of that, what do you think would be the biggest challenges or opportunities young professionals will face in the future? Taranika, thank you for that question. It's one that I spend a lot of time on. And frankly, it's the best part of, of my day. It's the next generation of professionals who will continue to advance 
the reliability, the confidence in public reporting and the CPA's role. So for less tenured professionals, what should they focus on? I think they should focus on relevance. Do we have a broad set of experiences and expertise in, for example, ESG information, digital reporting, like we talked about today, technology, which underpins the reporting processes and the audit? Do we have global acumen? Do we understand things from a much broader perspective because business transcends boundaries? Misconduct also can transcend boundaries, and we need to be able to identify the risks within the system to properly address it. So all of that then requires passion and energy and commitment and strong ethics, requires communication. Those are the things that I think distinguish professionals as they step into the important responsibility of being a CPA. And it's a responsibility whether you're sitting in private practice or public service. That's how I think about it. Great, Wes, thanks for your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with Wes. He led the office of the chief accountant at the SEC for four years. When he left, I was heartened to see that he not only joined PwC in a senior role, but also accepted the chairmanship of XBRL International. As I briefly mentioned during the interview, XBRL stands for Extensible Business Reporting Language, and when used in the filing made with the SEC, it enables a user or a data aggregator to machine-read the filing and put the information directly into a database without any human manipulation. Adoption of XBRL technology by SEC reporting entities began in 2009, more than a decade ago, and was one of the crowning achievements of former SEC Chair Chris Cox, who believed it would be a game-changer. Until then, you see, data aggregators and financial service providers would send financial documents offshore to low-cost labor centers where the information would be hand-keyed, entered into databases. It took, on average, 20 days for a financial statement to be processed and made available to the public through data aggregators, and only two-thirds of companies received coverage. There wasn't a business justification for the bottom third of companies. It was too expensive. These companies were too small to capture the attention of institutional investors, who are the primary source of revenue for data aggregators. I know this because I was a financial economist assigned to perform the economic analysis and the rules that led to the adoption of XBRL. Once the rules were fully phased in, by 2011, there was 100% coverage and no more need for manual key entry. But as Wes indicated, the rules fell short of success because the SEC didn't enforce them with the spirit with which they were intended. The data were not subject to the audit, so errors carried no liability, and that led to a lot of errors, many of which persist today. Equally inhibiting, companies often and unnecessarily use custom tags. These are the identifiers that explain what a data element is, like sales, revenue, total assets, or retained earnings. They do this instead of using standardized tags created and maintained by FASB that reflect common gap reporting standards. The result is that companies are not easily comparable for statistical and analytical purposes. For a decade, the SEC let these poor practices persist. It wasn't a priority and never a focus. There was no incentive for companies to improve the quality of their data reporting. If a poorly tagged document was submitted and accepted once, the company had no reason to change its practice in subsequent submissions, and they didn't. As Wes indicated, this could all change if XBRL reporting was brought into the scope of the audit. XBRL is an issue that I believe is a priority for one of our upcoming guests who is in a position to do something about it, so I look forward to revisiting the issue. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate it and don't be shy to tell others about it. Today's episode is a production of the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the Combs School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Our series is part of the UT Podcast Network. The opinions expressed represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not the University of Texas at Austin. Today's executive producers are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr of the Moody's College of Communication.